Good morning, FPO family. As we jump back into our study of Mark this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, looking at verses 29 through 33. So if you want to grab your copy of God's Word, flip open to Mark chapter 8. I'll read that text for us in just a few moments. But let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, I thank you for some time for us to gather around your Word. I thank you so much that you want to be known by us, and so you've given us your inerrant Word. Jesus, we thank you that we can see you and hear you in this inerrant Word. Spirit, we pray you'll make us good students of the Word, so we'll see Jesus clearly and hear from him clearly as we study together. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right, let me read for us. We're going to be jumping into the tail end of what we looked at last week, and we'll use that to jump into our discussion for this week. So jumping in, verse 29, chapter 8. And he, Jesus, asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So as we come to this text, it's a Jesus sort of leading his disciples into a, a better understanding of what he's going to do as the Messiah. But it's also, uh, it's also a look at the way that Peter wrestles with what Jesus says and then ultimately pushes back against it. There's a tension here, a tension that is highlighted between what Jesus says and what Peter wants. And ultimately, it's a tension that exists between the Messiah that we need and then those times when we feel like the Messiah that we need isn't actually the Messiah that we want. There's this song by the Rolling Stones. I only know a couple Rolling Stones songs. Uh, I had a t-shirt when I was in college, if that counts for anything, which it doesn't. But I only know two, but one of them actually pertains to this kind of idea, this tension. You can't always get what you want is a Stones song that is so well known. And if you remember, kind of the refrain says, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, well, you just might find you get what you need. It's that tension between what we want and what we need. And here we have Jesus highlighting in this interaction between his disciples and him and Peter specifically, he's the Messiah that we need. He meets our ultimate need. But sometimes we struggle because we don't see that, what we see or what we, th what we think are our ultimate needs. And so there's a tension where we become sort of disenchanted with the Messiah. And we say, you're not the Messiah that I want. Or functionally, we say, you're not the Messiah that I want. So we're going to talk about that tension today. First, we're going to look at Jesus here explaining to his disciples the kind of Messiah he is. He is the Messiah that they need and that we need. And then we'll talk about the tension that we feel. But let's jump first into our text, looking at verse 29 from last week. This is where Peter makes that declaration. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They answer that question. But then he says, hey, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And if you remember from Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Peter, because God revealed that to you. It's true. God revealed it to you. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's saying, you're the chosen one. You're the promised one. You're the king we've longed for. You're the one that is going to set all the wrong things right. Our hope rests in you. And Jesus says, you're right. You're right. But then Jesus here begins to teach his disciples. And I want us to see what he's teaching them. Look at verse 31 with me. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected 
by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and three days again rise. So what we have here is Jesus essentially unpacking his plan to accomplish the redemption of his people. He's just laying it right there in front of his disciples. He's unpacking what their, their truest, deepest need is. They need a Messiah who will suffer for them, who will be rejected for them, who will ultimately die for them and then be raised to new life for them. And Jesus is telling them, I'm not, this, this, I'm not Messiah. To his disciples, he's saying, I'm the one. I'm the one you need. I'm going to do all these things for you. And you can see as Jesus is unpacking this for his disciples, he wa he's wanting them to see and to, to wrestle with, do you know what your ultimate need is? Because I'm the solution for it. I came for you. I came for the very express purpose to suffer for you so that you won't have to suffer eternally. I came to be rejected for you so that your story will not be a story of rejection. I came to die for you so I could defeat death and death would not be the end of your story. I came to be raised to new life because it's a promise to you and a foretaste of the life that will be yours when you're reconciled and restored and glorified and able to live forever with the one who created you and loved you, loves you and sent the Messiah for you. So that's what Jesus is sharing with them. The good news of the gospel. And the gospel, the gospel is the only thing that addresses our ultimate need. And he's laying that in front of his disciples. He addresses their ultimate need. What we need is to be justified before God. We need to be made right before God. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to have forgiveness and pardoned and pardon purchased for us and applied to us. And that's what Jesus does for us. Now, it's very tempting for you and me to hear that and be like, yeah, yeah, that's all well and good, but it sounds like these ethereal, kind of abstract theological ideas, it's very philosophical. It's, it's hard to really find much encouragement in that. Like, yeah, I, I guess I think it's true, but what do you want me to do with it? But I want you to see here as Jesus is teaching his disciples, and you, I hope you noticed, he tells them the Son of Man must do all these things. These are necessary pieces for their salvation, which is why he came. He's wanting them to hear from his own mouth what the, the extent he's going to go to for them because he loves them. He wants his disciples to hear his love and his voice as he maps out his walk towards the cross. Because these are not abstract theological concepts. These are devotional realities. Like these are very personal and formative truths that Jesus shares with his disciples. He tells them the lengths that he's gonna go to because he loves them. I think the best way for us to maybe wrap our arms around a little bit is we know the experience of interpersonal forgiveness. I want you to think about a time when, when you blew it, when you hurt someone, when you made a train wreck of a relationship and you had to go to that person and you had to ask their forgiveness. And for them to forgive you, they had to absorb that hurt. They had to absorb that betrayal and they had to decide that they were going to look at you with love and joy as opposed to anger and bitterness. And they chose that and they forgave you. I want you to remember, what did that feel like? Because it felt emotional and weighty. You know the feeling, you know the experience. That's what Jesus is tapping into. That's what he's pointing to in a much more, on a much more cosmic scale here. He wants his disciples, including us, to know, hey, I love you and I'm gonna to see to it that you are forgiven. And that is something tangible. That is something that we can know. That is something that we can experience. And then we see in verse 33 that Jesus, you can sort of infer this, he refers to that as the things of God. He says, 
to, to Peter there. Hey, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. What are the things of God? The gospel, his pursuing love to accomplish our redemption and our forgiveness because he wants us in a close relationship with him. That truth, the desire that someone, that a being desires you in such an intense way to be in close relationship with them, that's something we, we long to know. It's not ethereal. It's not abstract. It's the things of God that when we set our minds on them, we know in an experiential and tangible way, I'm loved, I'm pursued, I'm desired, I'm forgiven. And that's what Jesus shares here. I'm the Messiah that accomplishes that for you. I bring that reality to you because I'm going to suffer for you, be rejected for you, die for you, and be raised again for you. So he shares the gospel with his disciples, with his followers. Now I want to shift gears here, and we're going to now look at what, how Peter responds to hearing that message. And it's a little shocking, honestly, when you really think about it. But it had me thinking, like, we've, we all know these moments. There's moments when when you just kind of look back on something you did or you said, and you just kind of shake your head and you think, man, why did I do that? I was talking to a good friend of mine this week, and he had one of those conversations with his wife. And he's like, I look back on it. We both had a good laugh about it now. I laugh with him. So we were chatting about it. And he was like, I can't believe I said it. Why did I say that? I had a, sim a situation like that going back to my very first year of marriage. So Hillary and I had been married for less than a year at this point, And she had been working as a nurse at a, at a hospital in Charlotte. Uh, and during this one week, she had worked her full shifts full set of shifts. Uh, and she ended up catching a virus, contracting a virus that one of her patients had, and it made her just violently ill. She was, and she was, and like, discomfort doesn't even really touch the surface of it. Like she was in physical writhing pain. And so we're laying there in bed and she's lying beside me and she's writhing in pain. And it's about two in the morning. And I'm so not proud of this. Just know that I'm not proud of this. But in my somewhat sleep-deprived sleep stupor, uh, that's a terrible excuse, I nudged her and I said to my, my young bride who was writhing in pain as she contracted a virus from a patient that she was serving lovingly, I nudged her and said, hey, I, I got to get up in the morning and work. Can, can you stop that? And I don't, I don't know what your face looks like right now as I tell you that story, but I can sort of feel it. And I, I'm not proud of that moment. That's definitely one of those moments I look back on and I just shake my head. I'm like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Well, Peter's about to have a moment where he's going to look back and just think, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? So let's jump in and, and see what Peter does here. So looking now at verses 32 and 33, we're going to look at Peter and it's going to help us sort of wrap our, our minds around, hey, sometimes we see and we hear Jesus and if we're honest, what we see in here is not the type of Messiah that we want. Peter gives us that kind of as a case study here. So looking at verses 32 and 33, let's look at verse 32 first. So here we have Peter, verse 32. And so Jesus speaks the, the good news of the gospel to them plainly, how he's going to march the cross for them. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. So here is the one who was the confessor that Jesus is the Christ just a few verses ago is now the rebuker of Jesus. Confessor of Christ becomes rebuker of Jesus, and it happens real quick. And it's because when he hears Jesus' voice, what his goal is, what he's come to do, it doesn't fit with what Peter's expectations were of Jesus. 
And I want us to see in verse 32, Jesus spoke plainly. It was not a misunderstanding. We kind of want to gloss this over. We want to say, well, Peter was just really, you know, he was really concerned. He didn't want his friend to die. Like Jesus was his friend and his leader and he loved him. And he didn't want Jesus to talk about, you know, being, being beaten and suffering and, and dying. That would make any of us just say, no, no, no. But that's not what happens here. This is not a heartfelt, you know, Jesus, no, don't, this can't happen to you. It's Peter saying, no, you've got it wrong, Jesus. Mark wants us to see that Peter pulls Jesus aside because he's like, Jesus, you can't say things like that. That's not right. That's not what the Messiah is going to do. It's Jesus have, uh, having an interaction with Peter here. And Peter's saying, you may be Jesus and you may be the Messiah, but I'm going to tell you what you're supposed to do. I'm going to help you understand and get some clarity on what the Messiah is going to do for us because it's not that. That's what's happening here. And so we have Peter taking issue with what Jesus says, because there's an impulse at work in Peter. He doesn't have a category for how it could be good news for him that his Messiah would suffer and die. How is that good news? They've been waiting for someone to help restore all of their fortunes, to, to help them have sort of a political stability and political autonomy again, to, to usher in a new kingdom experience for God's chosen people. Like that's what they've been waiting for. And so when Jesus talks about being a, the suffering servant who's gonna go to the cross for them, Peter doesn't have a category for it. And so he wants to shut it down. He's like, that's not the kind of Messiah that I want, Jesus. So let's, let's get our ducks in a row. Let's get our story straight. That's not what you're gonna do. That's not what you're gonna be about. And then Jesus rebukes him and he rebukes him strongly because what Peter says here, when Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, no, we don't want you to suffer. We don't want you to be rejected. We don't want you to die so that you have to be raised again. It's Peter saying, we don't want all the things that must happen. It's Peter saying, we don't want the gospel the way that you've unpacked it for us. And so Jesus knows this is about gospel clarity and he's not gonna let the moment pass unmarked. And so he engages Peter in some of the strongest language that we find from Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 33. Jesus knows what's at stake. And so he looks at Peter and he says, he turning and he sees, I hope you notice that he turns and he sees his other disciples and he knows they're listening too. They're listening. And he turns and he looks at Jesus and he says those classic words, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. So first, I want to say, what did Jesus mean by get behind me, Satan? What did he not mean by get behind me, Satan? And why did he say it in the first place? So what he meant by that was, Peter, the theology that you're speaking, the things that you're saying, they hearken all the way back to the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, when Satan said, Jesus, you can be the king without having to suffer. Just bow the knee to me. There's a way to be king without having to suffer and die. And Jesus rejects that because there is no hope for his people if he doesn't give himself willingly as a substitute for them. So he's calling out this satanic heresy that Peter is voicing. Peter's saying, I want a Messiah who doesn't die for me. And Jesus is saying, there is no hope in that. That is satanic. Satan wins if you believe that. So he's calling it out for what it is, and it's satanic, bad theology, right? So that's what's happening when, that's what he is saying to Peter. What he's not saying to Peter is, Peter, you're possessed by Satan. He's not saying that. He's saying the things that you say, Peter, resonate with what Satan wants to be propagated far and wide. Don't have people come to a suffering savior who gave himself for them, because that's where hope is, and Satan doesn't want us to find true hope. And why does he say it this way? Why does like, if this were a text message, Jesus looks at, sends Peter a text message in a group text and it's all caps calling him out. Like it doesn't get much more intense than this. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because he needs all of his followers to know there's no place for this kind of thinking 
and the church. Because the hope for us and the hope for our world is that we have one who suffered and was rejected and died for us and was resurrected for us. That's the hope. The gospel's at stake. And so he speaks very pointedly here to Peter. But Peter's taken issue with Jesus because Peter, as Jesus highlights here, he says, Peter, you've set your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. You've gotten so consumed with the geopolitical landscape of Jerusalem right now. You've gotten so consumed with what you want your life to look like and the life of your community to look like in this moment that you think the ultimate need is now for me to intervene temporally in your world, for us to, to shake up the landscape, shake up the leadership, but that isn't your ultimate need. Your ultimate need is to be made right with the Father through the substitutionary atonement of the Son. That's what he's, he's showing Peter and the disciples here necessity of the true gospel. He's saying, Peter, you're struggling to see it because you're so fixated on temporal things. You're so fixated on the things of man, not the things of God. Now, what I want us to do with the last bit of time that we have is I want us to see ourselves in Peter, because I think that's what Mark is leading us to. See yourself in Peter. We know the gospel. We've heard the gospel. This very morning, we've talked about the gospel, but there are times when that we would say, that's all well and good, but the most important thing in my life isn't my cosmic need for being made right with God. My most ultimate need is X, Y, or Z. Now, we wouldn't say it that way, but functionally, we live like that. We operate like that. Because we have expectations of what life is going to be like if Jesus is a good and gracious king. If Jesus is a good Lord and Savior, then my life's going to look a certain way. If he's really for me, he's going to do these things for me. We start believing those things. We start setting up those types of expectations in our minds and in our hearts. And we need to own that. It's us looking at Jesus and saying, you may be the Messiah that I need, but I don't want that kind of Messiah right now because I think I know what's best. I think I know what I need you to do. I think I know what's ultimate. And just a couple of examples for us. Like, what do we think about Jesus as our Messiah when we lose our job or when we get passed over for a promotion again? Or if we've been trying to have children and we can't seem to get pregnant and then this most recent pregnancy test was negative yet again? Like, what do, what do we think when we're single and we'd never planned on being single for this long and we're beginning to wonder if we're gonna be single forever? What do we do if we're watching our own, our adult children, our own adult children struggle and we don't know how to intervene and we don't know how to help? What do, what do we think about our Messiah then? Does, do we question whether or not our ultimate need is truly our ultimate need? Do we tell him, no, if you're a good Messiah, you have to do this? Or maybe when a, a loved one unexpectedly dies or becomes sick, or maybe it's when our retirement account just starts to plummet and we're about to retire. What maybe it's when we don't get into the college or we don't get into the major that we want or we don't get into the grad school program that we want. Or maybe it's when we get married and we realize marriage is harder than we thought it was gonna be. Or we have kids and, we, and we're, we were so excited to have kids, but, but now we're more exhausting. It's more exhausting than we thought it was gonna be. The question is raised for us, like, what do we think about Jesus's messiahship then? Are we tempted to say, Jesus, you don't care for me. You're, you're not the good Lord that you said you would because you're not doing these things for me. My, my temporal landscape of my life, it's a mess and I don't feel like you're fixing it. There's all these things I want you to do. I, th I think they're the most important thing. Why don't you think they're the most important thing? Don't you love me? 
And it's us essentially pulling Jesus aside and saying, that's all well and good, Jesus, but it can't, that can't be it. This needs to be it. You need to do this for me. And that's because just like Peter, it's so easy for us to let the things of man take over in our minds, to just invade all of our mental space. When we think about the things of man, the concerns, temporal concerns, how does that happen? Like, how do the things of man become what we've set our mind upon? what we set our mind on. It's because it's what we're feeding into our mind. The things that we watch, the things that we listen to, the, th the things that we read. We're just filling our minds with all kinds of things that we'd say, Jesus, if you were really good, you'd take care of this, that, and the other. We need to be filling our minds with the things of God, what Jesus has done for us. And it's not that, that I'm advocating that we stick our head in the sand. Like there are things going on in our world that we need to wrestle with and we need to think through. But the, the plan, the, the goal is not for us to set our, our minds on those things because then they cause us to doubt the goodness of our Savior, the goodness of our Messiah. What we need to do is to set our minds on the things of God and his love for us, his pursuit for us, his plan for our redemption, how he achieved it for us, the forgiveness, the reconciliation that we have, that we've experienced, and it will help us engage and understand the things of man. We'll better understand the, polit the politics of our day and the pandemic of our day, if we don't set our minds on those things, but we set our minds on how much God loves us and what he's done for us, it'll help us better understand how to engage these other areas of our life. It's not that the things of man are not important. They're not ultimate. We shouldn't set our minds on them. We should set our minds on the things of God so that we can better engage and understand the rest of our world that we're walking and engaging with. Now, how do we go about this? It's actually really simple. It's those spiritual disciplines. We read the Bible and we pray. We hear from our God and we speak to our God. We ask him to continue to remind us of all that he's done for us, to keep bringing it to mind because we're, quick, we're so quick to forget. We use study helps. Go, go listen to podcasts, read a book, read some articles help to help you better understand God's word, what he's revealed to us about his heart for us, we set our minds on those things. Let's fill our minds with those things. Let's watch those things. Let's read those things. Let's listen to those things. And then we'll be in a place to be able to engage our world with hope and with confidence because we've set our, our minds on the things of God. There's a question I want to leave us with this morning. It's the question of what have I set my mind on? It's a simple question, but, it, but it's a hard one, right? What have I set my mind on? Because whatever I set my mind on is going to shape the way that I see Jesus. If I've set my mind on the things of God, then I'll know what I ultimately need is to be made right with him. And that's been accomplished for me in Jesus. And so what I need has been provided and it'll lead me to celebrate Jesus. But if I think my ultimate need is for Jesus to do this, that, or the other in my individual temporal life, if he doesn't do those things, I'll become discontent with him. And I'll say, you're, you're not the good king that I thought you were. And I'll start experiencing more and more relational distance from him. It's a battle that's going on. Like the things of men, setting our minds on the things of men, the things of men are smothering us. We are having those things bombarded on us. We will have to fight to set our minds on the things of God. But the Spirit doesn't leave us to fight alone. Let's ask the Spirit to give us a, refresh, a fresh new desire to set our minds on the things of God, to rest in the love that God has for us that we see so clearly in Jesus and to know that experientially so that as we go through this next week, we'll engage the world of men and the things of men 
having set our minds on the things of God. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for this time. Thank you for a chance to consider your word and, your, and the way that you engaged your disciples and even your rebuke to Peter. It's a rebuke that on some level we all need to be reminded that we're not setting our, things, our, our, we're not setting our minds on the things of God. And that's why we're so disconcerted. That's why we're so uh, unsettled in our minds and our hearts. Spirit, help us, help us to, in a fresh way this week, remember and celebrate that we're loved, that we're pursued, that we're safe in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.